Purple Rain. All right. You said perp. Purple. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is uh, Fourth Stringers and BJJ World TV 2. We're with Krishna Merja. Is that how you say it? Merja. It's just quick. Merja. Merja. Like a Z almost. Like a jab. The J is like a Z. Well, uh, cheers to... Cheers. Cheers. To your future. To our future. And together. fourth stringer's future. Yeah. Don't you? Um, let's begin with, like, how you started. How'd you start jiu-jitsu? I think I know it, right. but I don't... But they don't know it, so... You see, like, in the earlier 2000s, this question became very trite. And the way that most guys started it, like, when you saw interviews with, like, Matt Serra or Dean Lister and those guys of that generation... They always kind of started out the same way, and they say that it started by watching Bruce Lee movies, they would say, and then in the 80s, watching Van Damme throughout the 90s, and they said that they wanted to do that, so they started to find um, schools that did karate or kung fu, Mm -hmm. and then they said by the time 1993 came around, they watched In Action, which is the Gracie-promoted video made by Horion Gracie. Mm -hmm. Mine's not that different, my story. It's pretty much identical to that, except I didn't go to any other martial art first. Like, I didn't join a school, like a karate school or a kickbox cardio school or anything like that first. I just watched people. Were you, like, in college by the time you joined or, like... No, no, I was was young, young, young. Uh, I was in my early teens. Oh, shit when I started to see grappling and I used to read a lot of martial arts books and I would watch videos of people who did Japanese jujitsu and they would do it um, against people that were willing participants so nothing oh like the Aikido demonstrations yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. things uh, but that's how I learned how to like do like the first like RNC and things like that uh, I understood it by watching it and then in 1993, um, they made the the Gracies, made the UFC, watched that. And then from there, um, I got really good at imitating whatever I watched. Mm-hmm. And no matter like how complicated it was, I would wear out all my VHS tapes, rewinding, slow motioning. Uh. So, I mean, I'm a real student of film. And I have everything from, like I said, 93 to now. And it got to the point where... Uh, watching so many of like Hoist Gracie's UFCs and then I got really into watching Ken Shamrock for leg locks the next <laughs> year <clears throat> that it really imprinted on me and I went to some seminars in like 1995 I went to a seminar that Hicks and Gracie did on the island mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a seminar it was more like a, a camp because it was a whole three day like weekend a Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing and I went there and obviously I thought I knew a lot and I bought a judo gi because there was no BJJ gis. I didn't have a belt, so I actually took a rope from the garage that I had tied oh, around my waist. And I wanted it as a kind of a symbol saying, listen, I know what you guys do, but this is what I do. And it's probably different. How old were you at this time? Like, uh, I'd have to say I was probably in high school, I'd say, oh, around shit. there. And uh, when Hickson did the seminar... He brought his son, Huxon, who who died a few years later in yeah. a moped accident, supposedly. Uh, most likely it was a, uh, I think it was a drug overdose, though, is the real story. But 
after that, and he had uh, Hoyler there, and I remember none of them spoke English. Only Hickson spoke English. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of jerks that were there. And I remember, like, when it was time to roll, um, Hickson would specifically say, is there anybody here that's, like, 140, 150 that can roll with Hoxson or Hoyler? And somebody would raise their hand that's a wrestler, but the guy was clearly not that light. He was much heavier. Oh, shit. And so, like, he would go out there, and he was very disrespectful. It's like it's like when a guy says he's 5'7", yes. but he's not really 5'7". He's 5'7", five, seven, seven. yeah. And he would go, and he went, he rolled the toiler. And I don't know if you remember this, but <coughs> there was an old-school move you would do, and everybody in the 90s did it. If you were in closed guard, you would take your elbow and dig it into the closed guard. And you'd try and, like... People dig. still do that. Do they? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And then you, they get punished by a triangle, like right. a hand-feed triangle, yes. yeah. I didn't know they still do it. Uh, yeah. But back then... It's, like, it was, instinctual almost. Because they're like, how do I open this? Ah. I could see you, like, pushing on it, but, like... As a move? To, yeah, oh, they're okay. doing it to be painful. And so, like, when they would... I remember clearly seeing... This guy putting his elbow into Hoyler's thigh, and he grabs his fist, and he's trying to dig it in. And Hickson speaks up, and he says, my friend, that's not going to open his guard. All you're going to do is anger Hoyler. Oh, shit. And so everybody got quiet, and we were like, this is not a normal like seminar. Like This yeah. is bizarre. And I think at the time, Hickson wasn't so used to teaching in front of crowds, because he was young, too. This, Like I said, this is 30 years mm-hmm. ago, 27 years ago, something. And... That's where I picked up all my basics, though, was from that seminar. But we all trained together. So Hoyce had guys from Torrance Academy there. And that was the first time I actively trained against real grapplers. Right? Real grapplers. And so it was in the gi, though. But all I knew were heel hooks and knee bars. That's <laughs> it. And so everybody I roll with, I would heel hook. And I remember being like, you know, 15, 16 year old kid seeing what kind of power this was. And I said, I, in my head, I said, this isn't good. You know, like, because I was rolling with this guy who said he was like 27 and he was a hoist crazy blue belt, brand new blue belt and tall guy. He and I thought very highly of himself. He's, <laughs> yeah. And back then there was no blue belts. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's what I'm saying. And uh, he asked me to train. And I remember like within five seconds, you know, he stood up in my guard. I went to a heel hook from, we used to call it a noose back then. Uh, the single leg X the single leg X was uh-huh. a noose and then it keeps changing names today and I put him in one and then I put him in a heel hook and I remember he did didn't you reap? tap I reaped yeah oh my god I reaped to his far leg and I remember he didn't tap but I didn't have much power as a kid at the time but the position was terrible and I just remember feeling like uh, tearing in his foot you tore it but it was because he didn't tap and I didn't have enough experience in it to know what was damaging yeah. and he started to cry and he walked out of the room. and he cried? Yeah, he cried. Adult cried. And the, Oh, my God. And yeah. that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, wow, this is a lot of power in these yeah. things, you know? And here I said, I, I don't know any jiu-jitsu, and this happened. But that was bad of me because then it made me feel like I was much better than I was. So then right away, like at the first tournament, the very first grappler's quest I went into in like 1997, I put myself in the advanced division. Who knows oh, what I was no. thinking? Oh, no. I don't yeah. know what I was thinking. And... Went in there and uh, faced a really good guy at the time. He was a purple belt. And just for some perspective at that time, 1997 was like just the year I think Matt Serra was just about to get his black belt. That's how long ago this was. Like a lot of guys were, the guys who were like world-class guys now, they were like white belts at that time. That's so crazy, yeah. It's a weird time. And I would enter the advanced division and 
uh, get destroyed. You know, like I would go for legs, and if I missed it, they that was, was it. That was it. They'd end up mounted. I would turn, and then you can't, and that's it. So then I realized there's some big pieces missing to this Like your game. basics. There's a whole... There was no basics. There was yeah. no basics. Yeah. And even though, like I said, I had what Hickson showed, it was basically like mount reversal. Um, oh, that invisible jujitsu. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's showing. Yeah, yeah, I see it. I took a Hickson seminar back in the day. Actually, oh, yeah. I, I took a Hickson seminar. I went to, you know, the Hickson Gracie Cup? Yes. Yeah. I went up there. It was like me, Mancini. It was a bunch of other people. No, no, no. It was in Albany. Oh. So he had a Hicks and Gracie Cup. I competed in there. That's where I got some nasty cauliflower because I was just getting collar tight. What year was this? It was actually two years ago, maybe three. I mm. think three, actually. Mm. And I was still... Uh, You're a white belt? No, no. Three. No, no, no. It was two years ago. It was like my one of my first purple belt competitions. Uh. So like... I've been training four years, so two years ago, I was a fresh purple belt. Yeah, my first purple belt competition. Oh, okay. And um, he had a seminar the day before. And uh, I remember he was trying to show us, like, the invisible jujitsu. Mm -hmm. Like, he's like, and, like, it was more like a self-defense type of thing. I what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So, like, it wasn't like... You know, we weren't learning anything like I would say, like, all, like, groundbreaking. It wasn't sport jujitsu. It wasn't really sport yeah. jujitsu, but... What I did take out of that seminar, I do remember, was like um, just more of a like understanding of gray area jujitsu. Whereas like, okay, it's not all about trapping and rolling. That's not really what's going on. What's mm -hmm. really going on is the move between the move. Like, yes, like it's what you feel. And I was actually used as a demonstration oh. for like one of his things. He was he like, he touched you. He touched me. Dude. Where? Everywhere. Oh. I got to mount him. He let oh, me God. mount him. I, I, I could say that I mounted Hicks and Gracie, actually, now that I think about it. So um, he let me mount him. And then he told me, like, hey, I want you to base out. And I'm like, OK. And then, like, I remember I remember I based out. He's like, not like that. <laughs> he's like, like you do jujitsu. He's, like, he's like, yeah, yeah, not like that. Not like that. I'm like, oh, OK. So, you, you put your head like, on the mat. Like, I, I fucking, I like based out. You know, I, I opened my knees. I fucking, you know, I wasn't just like holding. Like, he, he just wanted. He just wanted me to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I fucking opened my knees. I did that. And he was like, no, 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 no. Just, just use your hand. I'm like, OK. So then. Why would you? All right, never mind. So I didn't know. I didn't know, dude. So like I, I, I based out and then he rolled me even though I had my base out. That's his thing. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I had my arm trapped and then he wanted me to base out that way. I based out and he still was able to roll me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, this is interesting because I actually haven't, I don't know yeah. what you're doing here. Yeah. And like, I remember drilling that shit and I understood it. Like I understood what it was. It was like you're creating an angle with your lower body that, that creates such a strong bridge as you're going. Like you're taking three mini steps as you're doing your bridge. It's steps. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the little mini steps, which isn't what they don't really teach you that they'll teach you like, Oh, do a big bridge while trapping the arm. Right. And like, that's what, and uh, that's really what I a lot of jiu-jitsu says that when the top guy bases to move on to something else or, you know, you'd have to trap the arm or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what he was trying to teach at the time, uh, which is really useful, is that when somebody does base, first bridge in, um, the, how do I say it? Don't bridge in the direction you initially, you, you, you ultimately want to go. Yeah. So like if you wanted to bridge to your left, bridge up first. Now their hand is above your head. Now when you bridge to the left, that hand has to move from over your head. To the side. It has to actively be. Yeah, and usually yeah. it doesn't land properly, mm -hmm. and it's too heavy on your hand to, to hold up. But I, I, I follow what he's saying. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, it, there's a lot of funny things about, about Hicks and like that. But is, is Kron still competing at all? No, he does MMA. He doesn't do any jiu-jitsu, right? No. No, no and they haven't even... I'm, I'm going to double-check the video. They haven't even uh, hinted at it. I, I thought he was going to do ADCC for a second, but I don't no. think he is. Nah. But I don't even, like... He he had a great performance. I don't remember how he did, but I remember that Gary Tonin fight he had. Well, besides that, that same year, do you remember he submitted JT? Oh, I from did. From close guard. Yeah. Really? Elbow control. Yeah, close guard, elbow control. Just classic jiu-jitsu. Yeah, and he just did it, and I remember JT was just furious afterwards. But uh, yeah, and he won that year, and then he went right into MMA right afterwards, and he never returned to Abu Dhabi. Oh, shit. Well, I mean, he reached the pinnacle. 2015, yeah. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, you should watch more film. I'm going to. I have the thing. If yeah. you want to pick that up and tell it. Yeah, just real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put look busy. Look busy? <laughs> oh, what I was going to say. Look <laughs> That's an amazing note. <laughs> Let him talk. Look busy. Yeah, look busy. Look busy. Um, so you feel important too. What about the, the what I was saying when you're reaching oh, for the sake, it's something I meant to tell you. This is good. We could talk about it on yeah. there. Okay. Is that uh, just for future reference when you're talking about normal customs when drinking sake is that when somebody's empty, you cannot fill yourself. The custom is you have to fill theirs. Oh, I and also the younger you know, one has to pour right. for the which is what I was well all day I've been filling yours because you well, don't pay attention. Well, it's your house. It's not only my house. I'm just saying you probably see it and then it just fleets out of your head and you're saying I forgot. But are you Asian? No. So do you follow the customs though? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that. So I'm yeah. going to do that now. We're all aging. <laughs> so Asian. I, I'm not even supposed to touch it actually. Don't a new Joker movie? Of course. She looks crazy. Yeah. Have it's... you seen It too? No, not yet. I still have to. Oh my god! Don't tell me. No, I no. I'm wait. just. I just want to say, It one. I loved it. It was so good, and I couldn't watch It two by myself. I was like, I have to watch this with somebody because it's so scary. Like how scared I, I was wait. for It one. It one was and scary. Hereditary. I saw that you. Yeah. Hereditary was so fucking good. I get chills thinking about yeah. how scary that. So movie let me was. ask you this: Did you hear about this other movie at the same time Hereditary was made? It was called. Um, has to do with a mom. Mom. Oh, oh, oh! The Benicio del Toro one. No, 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 no! I knew you were gonna say that. No, mother. this is this is one that's um about two kids. Their mother got in a car accident, and she comes back after she's all wrapped up. And she has like she's bedridden, uh-huh. and they're like in Germany, and the kids don't know what's wrong with their mom. She's acting so different, and they're like saying, "I don't think that's mom." <gasps> it's so creepy, and I know the actress that stars in it because she's part of the same wildlife charities we are, so we're always communicating. And I was like, I contacted her one day. I said, "That's you in that film, starring in this," and she's like, "Yeah," and I couldn't believe it. I'll, I'll show you her on Instagram, and uh, it's called "Good Night, Mommy." Oh shit! I've yeah. never seen it. Really? Let's it watch the preview. Crazy. Did you see what Akbari put out? He put out a back take. Uh, he put out a back take. He, he put out a back take from like fifty fifty, basically same thing. But it's like oh yeah 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 yeah. It's the oh, same wait. thing. No, not from fifty fifty. Well, whatever it was from, from single leg X. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not his though. That's Cachino's. Yeah. Cachino. Yeah. Who's that? 
Osvaldo. Osvaldo Alves. Like the, I see Rao using it a lot. Um, yeah, it was his, and he credited him too in the video too. You know Osvaldo if you see him. It's the name Q U E X I N H O Cachinha. You do. You gotta be a fan of the sport if you're gonna be in it, man. You gotta know all the players because you're gonna end up facing these guys one day, and by the time you do, they're gonna be decrepit, and you're gonna be fresh. Yeah, not the slang. What were we talking about? We were talking about you were in a tournament and then you would get smoked by the purple belts. Yes. Going for your noose. Yeah, I would go for the whole leg line. If I got the leg, it was fine. But I'm saying on the off chance that either, and I remember this too, being so nervous back then, everything was wet on people. Everything was sweaty. Because like, like, like I said, it was the first grappler's quest. Was everyone wearing like undershirts? There was no like there real jujitsu no gear? Guards. Yeah. The rash guards didn't hit till 99 or no, 98 at Abu Dhabi. What Valley. tournaments were these? People were wearing surfing rash guards. This was the first grappler's quest. Oh, grappler's quest. And it was called a grappling challenge at NYC. And it was at Nat Holman. Uh, over there was in Harlem. And they had it there. And I remember it was a pretty decent turnout. And it was the same thing. Like you had to pay like Except instead of a hundred, it was like thirty dollars or whatever. So you must have seen some like horrendous. I feel like some horrendous injuries would happen back in the day because of like no, no, no. I mean, because all people were doing was doing double leg takedowns. Their passing was uh, archaic, and they would go to mount to armbar or mount to RNC, and then and that was it. You didn't see uh, leg lock injuries and mm. things like that. The worst things were with the takedowns. You had you know these master wrestlers coming in. And uh, spiking people, you know, even the the guy who ran the Grappler's Quest got spiked on his head. And uh, remember Brian Simmons? No. Did you ever hear of him? No. He's the guy that started Grappler's Quest. Uh huh. Um, he was lifted in the air, <coughs> and um, oh, he was spiked. Get this, in closed, he was in closed guard on the bottom. The guy picks him up, and drops from closed guard in the bottom. Yeah, he picked him up, I think, and drops him, and he takes like a can opener. And he stuffed his head down on the slam. And it was grotesque, I remember. I mean, Some of those details might be off, but I know that's how he got injured. And he uh, severely, he might have even broken his back or something. What but, the fuck? Like I said, the guy put his hands here and with two hands stuffed it down in a can opener. And uh, yeah, he, he stopped competing. Holy shit. But and he, then he's like, no slams, guys. No yeah, can that, openers, that's no where slams. That's it started. Yeah. No can opener, no slam for there. But slams are still good. But the thing is, is that we don't... In a ring, it's fine, but when you do a grappler's quest and you have gym mats over a gymnasium floor, it's, it's you, you need some airspace in there, you yeah, know? Yeah, like some bounce and Yeah, give. there's no give. Like on the Kasai stage, you could do that. It's so high up. Mm-hmm. Do they allow slams in Kasai? I'm yeah, not sure. yeah, they oh, allow slams. Okay. You could do anything in Kasai. Anything. <laughs> anything. But, uh, so... But yeah, so after you, those, those tournaments and stuff, then, uh... Did you enroll into a real academy or something? No, but I would poach people. Like, I would set up, like, uh, little clubs at universities and stuff and find somebody who did it. Say, oh, what did you learn? Uh-huh. And I'd pretend that I knew it and stuff, but I'd really be, like, sucking That's in their awesome. knowledge. Um, and I think it was just because I was a decent teacher because I've always taught uh, for most of my life. And so, like, whatever I saw, I could spit it out probably better than they were doing it at the time. And um, as soon as I would see like any uh, new UFC match, and at the time, like let's say if Abu Dhabi just started like in 97, 98, 
I got really um, sharp at being able to to watch a technique and then emulate it. And um, it was almost like uh, like photographic reflexes. Like I could see it and then I could do it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm good at poaching too, that I could see something and try and replicate it. And at the time, um, there were so few good techniques that were being used on TV I was limited by what was shown on camera yeah how would you know what's flack and what's not just because you would try and experiment with it and say okay this is but people were so bad back in the day I would feel like you know anything could fucking work right and so the thing is it's like to be good back then was easy yeah to be good now is rare everybody's good now yeah even in the last three years that's this short span of time and this little microcosm of three years when the leg lock revolution was reborn. Even now, the rules have changed from back then. Everybody's got to be respected, you know? I think, you know, Keenan actually got in trouble for saying some comments like this where he said that the people who, because he has a podcast with uh, Josh Hinger or Hinger, or whatever, but uh, he was saying that. The best grapplers from back in the day are like at best like purple belt level now mm-hmm. because the game has evolved so much yeah, and there's so an much insult. new to and that's what he was trying to get at. He was okay. like, "Yo, it's not an insult, but you know, the Gracies got really offended. Yes. Some of them called them out like, "Yo, I'll come to your gym and fuck you up, man." Like <laughs> and he's just saying like, "Yo, like it's actually a compliment to the sport that you guys created because look, it's evolving." And you have to say, without you guys, we wouldn't be here. Or else they get very angry. No, I'm just it's a fact that our level of jiu-jitsu today is so far advanced to what it was 15 years ago. But it wouldn't be that way if these people didn't put the time. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that it's never fair to say to take an athlete from today and an athlete from 20 years ago and put them in the same sport. It's never fair for that. People always want to do that with boxing and stuff. And it's never fair because never go backwards in a sport. It only gets better. And nowadays with technology and the fact that the thing that exists today that didn't exist in my time was that people do this for a living now. That we mm. have 16, 17, 18-year-olds that realize they have an aptitude for this or they might develop one and they forego going the route scholastic and they go to jiu-jitsu because either their parents can support them or they're willing to make that sacrifice and sleep on mats and, and eat jujitsu three meals a day. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge change that wasn't available before. So that means now you're getting so many people that are uh, obsessed and focused and driven that are going single-mindedly into one direction to become very good at this. They're not saying that I want to be you know a superstar from this. Mm-hmm. They want to be really good. They just want to be good. They yeah. want to be good. And that's where the best technique gets. Right. Like, I, I yeah, and I, I credit, I mean, you see what Keenan's doing. You see what all these guys are doing, these new guys are doing. Like, it it, it really shows, like, yeah. uh, I if I put Eddie Cummings in a fucking time machine, right. it would be... It would be ridiculous. Put him in UFC 1. Yo, oh my God, it right? doesn't matter. He would be a champion. Yeah. Wow, that's insane. I never really thought of that. Whenever time is being played with it'll never be fair for the person in the past because there's no known way to counter what they're doing because it doesn't exist because it's so new yeah the great thing though about taking like these black belts that were black belts since 98, 99, 2000 is that even though they're older today the sensitivity they developed cannot be rushed 
the guys who started training in 2011, 2012, mm -hmm. they are most likely fantastic today. They know all the latest trends in jiu-jitsu. They know all the latest counters. Mm -hmm. But you can't rush sensitivity. Sensitivity only comes through time and reflection mm -hmm. and injury and reflection. Those guys in 2000, their sensitivity today is sharp. Their bodies are broken. But show them today's techniques, they will be able to improve it because their mind is still working in ways that current guys don't work. Yeah, we don't, we don't understand. It, it doesn't have to because they're going to say, well, this way might be safer. This way is more ergonomic. This is more conducive to your body because they've went through it. And now mm -hmm. they know we need to find ways so that when you're 40, you can still do this art that you love. But most likely, the way you guys train today, you won't be able to. No, I don't think so. The pace that you guys are going yeah. at, the frequency of it is, is too high. And even though you know you interview people and they say, oh, I find a happy medium and I listen to my body and I don't believe it. I mean, I, I train with pros every day and I hear them and they tell me this and I say, well, how many days are you training? And they're like saying, oh, I take Sunday off, but I, I still rep. So I'm saying, so you're rolling hard five days a week? And they say sometimes six. That's too much. And you would say it's too much. Well, like, of course it's too much if you were sparring that much with, like, a striking art or something. But Absolutely. since this is a grappling art, you would say that it's still too much? Just Unless you could pick and choose your partners. Like I said, if you're 155 pounds and you want to compete in the 140s and you are training five to six days a week, then you'd have to be so specific to say that if I'm going to train at this intensity and frequency together that I would need training partners that are falling within that bracket or lighter. But it's those those random errant guys that come in at 190, 200 that are competitors like you that you roll with are going to increase the age of your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like I was lucky enough to come into grappling with no like age in my body or even bad habits because right. I, I have never done a sport. Mm -hmm. Like I was always like a fat kid. I would always just play video games all day mm -hmm. and I never played a sport. So I didn't come in here with like bad wrestling habits right. or like bad, I don't you know. You didn't come from Krav Maga or whatever. Yeah, none know. of that. So like I was able, I feel like to excel in the sport because I had you and mm -hmm. I had direction and like I didn't have all those bad habits to really like mess up my body or like, great. you know, like, so grappling age, when do you think someone hits their peak? peak is different for everybody because you once again it's a, it's a physical thing and it's a mental thing and it has to do with how much competition have you put into yourself you know and it's also um what environment are you in because you might feel wherever you're training that you're you know in the top 10 percent of your school which is great but the thing is is that where does your body stack up in that knowing that you haven't tested yourself in competition yet. That if you've, like I said, you've been training personally like four years now. Yeah. And now like you really want to start turning up your competition. You want to get more frequency out yeah. there. You want to get out there more. Now you have to try and get the, the right proportion of academy training time to competition time. So to say like, you know, when people say they peaked or they're not sure if they've peaked, um, it's not something you know until you have a uh, adequate amount of competition under your belt. 
it, it's too hard to quantify that. I think you know. But so there's not. Yeah, there can't be like a certain age because everybody's so unique. No, and they're like, no. look at look at Josh. He's in ADCC now, and he's like 37 or Who's something. Who's Josh? Injured. Oh, okay. Yeah, he he just hit. He just won the trials for yeah. the first time. He's well, like Galvo's up there too. You know? Yeah, yeah, and but he's been doing it for a minute too. Right, right. And the thing is, is like now, like I said, I've been involved in jujitsu since ninety six or ninety five. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I've only been like seriously training. Like when I say seriously, like training, you know, every week from like ninety nine two thousand. So it's over twenty years, and now I know that I can't maintain that frequency. I can't do two a days for myself i can't do that i'm i'm held together with just just booze and painkillers put me together so that i could function and train yeah and um i think most guys from my generation feel that way but i know my technique is much sharper than it's ever been i know i still have timing but i'm uh i'm missing well i shouldn't say i have timing i'm missing reaction time now though that um i almost at certain times become a spectator in jiu-jitsu oh, I and see. then i react and i don't like that and that just came with, with, with age and damage you know yeah that comes with being an older grappler yeah it's, it's gonna be natural. inevitable but that's why when you do that now you have to adapt to that and now i could take those sort that skill set that i'm learning now of being able to find ways to set other people up that i don't have to be quick i'm just in the right place at the right time yeah and or like you know on. something's gonna yeah, happen, you know like gonna you, happen. you lead them into the trap. Right. Of, yeah. It's just like when you do those card tricks and you force that card and you know what they're gonna pick. I'm doing the same thing. I'm making sure you only have three options from the top, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. probably guess the right one, especially yeah. if I foot track yeah. you. And I'm saying nowadays I'm smarter than I've ever been with it, and I think that's the main reason why I get a lot of clients to teach because. When we strategize, especially because I'm a fan of the sport, I know most people's opponents, and I could guess the route that person will go, mm-hmm. knowing who you would be as yeah. a fighter too, and uh, that's that's what makes it a little different. But I wish I could still train like I used to and train a lot more. But I know I can't take the weight and I can't take the yeah the daily pounding. You know yeah. That there should be like a master's academy for you guys. Dude. <laughs> yeah, that, that there should be crazy. Be. Yeah, like with padded walls. And yeah, stuff. like the like nursing homes. Just yeah, like a nursing academy. Yeah, I mean that's why I have cats. What? 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 <laughs> well, okay. So take me back. We're in. Uh, we're in. Uh, like you just joined yeah. Matt's gym. Like how did how did you even end up at Matt's gym? I'm out of sake. I got you. Um, in 2000, I was competing at, I forgot what tournament it was, but I was fighting some dude who I think is still well known now. I can't think of his name, but tall, lanky guy. And, um, Keenan? No. something like Keenan, but Keenan started much later. Um, I'm going to record this on my phone too. Okay. This one. You have two phones. I do that too. Yeah. One for the girls and one for your mom. One for the Asian girls. Oh yeah. All right, what were you saying? So tall, yeah. lanky guy. So yeah, like in two thousand, um, at a tournament, this guy jumped guard and couldn't slam him back then because you were thinking about it. And at the time, I had no instructor. I was just learning from watching people on TV and stuff. But like I said, I only had leg locks. Even at that time, from watching like Ken Shamrock, watching Japanese pancreas fighters, I was learning it. And then I went to an Oleg Taktarov seminar, who was a UFC champ, 
and who's a Sambo guy. I know, like, that's the guy who got knocked out by Henzo, right? Yes, yes, With yes. the kick to the I face. I was there for that, yeah. Oh, you were there? I was there, yeah. That must have been a crazy night. And uh, anyway, at this tournament, though, I remember this kid was one of those long guys that could body lock you from close guard, which I can't stand. So it's like a stalling it's tactic. It's such a stalling tactic. Yeah. But back then, I didn't know that. And I was just thinking, man, I'm exhausting myself trying to stand, trying to open his legs, and all he would do was just keep pulling me back down. Mm-hmm. And I remember after that match, um, Matt was watching it. And I don't remember who it was, but somebody said, oh, Matt was asking who you were. And uh, I said, Matt who? And he said, Matt Sarah. And I was like, holy cow, like, I don't know, is a fanboy a term for, like, if you watched a lot of somebody and, like, you'd uh-huh. be nervous to meet them? Yeah. Because at the time, remember, I learned only through film. Mm-hmm. So I used to order the DVDs of the 90s Abu Dhabis, and I used to watch Matt Serra, and I remember him fighting, um, like, when he fought Takanori Gomi, and I watched this guy, you know, he jumped guard, did an omoplata, like, broke his shoulder, <gasps> then choked, his, choked, choked him out. And then he went on to his next match, and he beat Jean-Jacques Machado, and all these crazy matches he had, and he was submitting people. At the time in Abu Dhabi, most matches were fairly boring. Uh-huh. And when I saw Matt Sarah and I heard he was the first American black belt, and he's a Henzo guy, I couldn't believe it. Is it the ghosts? Seeing Abu Dhabi with Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, when Matt was winning all these matches and stuff, and so I didn't know what he sounded like. And I just remember that, like, I couldn't believe that there was a master, like, that was on Long Island that performed like that. So um, when they said he was asking about me, I went and introduced myself. And when he spoke, I remember didn't hear a word he said because all I heard was a Long Island accent with F-bombs constantly. <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy? This can't be Matt Sarah. Yeah. But I just remember, like, look, he looked like a comic character because, like, like, his head and neck was gigantic. And, like, mm-hmm. I was like, how is this guy real? Mm-hmm. He looked like Wolverine, you know? And Yeah, the classic Wolverine, the classic though. Wolverine. Not the Not new Hugh one. Jackman. Yeah, yeah, the classic one. On the one Broadway, who's a fucking yeah. stone, like yes. a boulder. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's meant to be, like, five foot three. He's yeah. meant to be 300 pounds at five three and not a six foot four um, Broadway guy, you know? And when Matt was talking to me, I didn't hear anything he said. I just couldn't believe this was him. I was like, how is this guy so good? And he sounds like this. Yeah. And um, then he says, okay, he goes, come to my school. And he did like a free kind of like intro, like private thing with me. And uh-huh. um, once that happened, I was like, wow. I said, this guy can answer every single question I Whoa. had. And I, at, my, at the time, I probably was like a pinnacle in my life where I said, I can't believe that I have somebody here that can answer any question I had. And I remember I felt so lucky to have that. And then uh, every week I did a private lesson with him. And I, let's say, I don't know what I was, if I was 19 or whatever. And I remember thinking that, okay, all my money's going towards this. Wow. And so I spent everything I had to be able to go every week. And back then privates were 100 with him. And so I'd do that every week with him. And only if he couldn't make it, I would do one with his younger brother uh, instead. And that was okay. I mean, it wasn't like Matt, but it was still going. And then if he wasn't around, then I would do it with Joe Scarola, which were great. Mm-hmm. It's great privates and stuff. And like I said, I did that for a solid year. Wow, so you've known him since you were like 19? Long time, yeah. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, I'd say all my basics and my foundation came from him. 
And the best thing that I ever learned from him was about posture. And like I said, that still carries through today. And a lot of Nogi guys don't have that, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it was great for, for learning all that and my teaching style that came from him. So you were there when it was like the barn or was it something yeah. even before that? It was the barn and it was at his house too. And so like um, we, he would do a lesson at his house and, uh, you know, met his mother that passed unfortunately yeah. and his family and stuff. And um, it was, you know, to see how far this guy has come and how far jujitsu has come. It's crazy that you'd be the America's first black belt, you know, and you have to teach out of your house and stuff. It's weird. That is crazy. Did and you, I, did you have the chance to train? Like, were you training at the Academy regularly? Uh, no, I was only doing privates. And oh, so shit. like, it was very bizarre way to do it. So like he would only like, he would roll with me and uh-huh. that's what I got used to. So by having that scale, whereas like I roll with him and any mistake you make, he would catch you. Then he would say, okay, let me watch your roll with this blue belt here. And I remember realizing, like, just how deep this goes to say that, wow, I can make 10 mistakes with this guy and, and nothing bad happens. Oh, wow. And when I made that connection there, I said, that means I have to keep doing what I'm doing with him so that my standards are this high. Yeah. And it made sense at the time, but it's still not the key because you do that too much. And then you realize you never get an offense off because you're working with people that are too advanced. Yeah, yeah. So, like... I remember like a long time ago, Joe Rogan said that like a, a, like some to that effect where like if you really want to get good, you have to grab all the blue belts and kind of like beat them up and use the new technique that you're working right in order to get better. Because if not, you're just surviving the whole right. time. Um, the way I put it, like I guess the best way I've distilled it down over the years and I tell everybody this after a private and it's on the outline I give them is that whatever we worked on today, so you don't go. And on your drive home, it just fleets out of your brain. You have to make sure that you take these moves and you use them against all the smallest, weakest, least experienced people there are. So you could gain some confidence in making a groove in your brain to find that move to the finish. Do it enough till you could start to do it on your peers. Then once you finally get good enough to do it on your peers, then it's time to bring to the upper belt. But you have to keep chipping away like you're trying to form some amorphous block into something that makes sense for you. And it might not make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And you have to do it that way if you want this move to mature. How many times do people go to seminars and the the moves are gone? Yeah. And the thing is, no matter how great they were the day you practiced them, if you don't create that path in your brain from going to brain to hands to feet on enough body types and gain confidence with it, it's gone. And I it'll mean, always be gone. Yeah, yeah. it's gone. And you, you really have to make sure you, you go along that path of saying, I'm going to do it against people that I can dominate. Then I'll do it on my peers, mm-hmm. the people that are at my level. And then I'm ready to bring it to the upper belts and more experienced people. Yeah. And I think that's the only way to mature those sort of moves. Uh, in today's world of, of high level techniques yeah. Uh, yeah I think so too and and especially like having a coach who's already done that and knows like yo this is a real move right this isn't some shit you saw on YouTube exactly that, like, like it just looks flashy yeah. or whatever so like it's good to have an instructor instructor you trust for that and I always you know tell people at the end like when I give them the techniques that I say I don't teach anything that I don't do personally mm-hmm. so I know that it works um 
which I think is tough today because, you know, you see more and more a lot of instructors that don't have a good pedigree behind them. Yeah. And they're showing what they think works. And now what that happens, when that happens, we are going to do that circle again back to Okinawa where people were doing martial arts like karate and in Korea like Taekwondo. And in Japan, these things were written as theory. They say if somebody throws a punch, you are going to block it like that. Theoretically, that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. But they didn't spar like that, you know? They didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And now if you have people teaching techniques that are most likely, you know, uh, somewhat questionable, it's going to go back to theory again. And you have to be careful. It doesn't go that way. And I, Yeah, that's why I think it's important to have like that, like especially a, a sensei who's self-aware, like wh whether they compete or not, at least they know that the move works. Right. Like they have students who have used the move that like they see okay like trial and error like, yes, okay this exactly. shit works like yeah. yeah and that's what's great about our art is that you could innovate a move mm -hmm. that could be potentially new and when you do it if i see you doing it against people in a live situation i'll be like wow that's great then i see you do it against a higher belt or in competition you just did something pretty remarkable there because the way we have to think about it in jiu-jitsu is that if you are willing to make a theory Right in the science world, you know, we make observations and theories before anything becomes a law. Is that if you're willing to theorize that this move is going to work, it must be tempered on an anvil of reality, meaning you must train it and you must show me that it works. So it's it's a merit based system. Mm -hmm. You get merit for showing me that, you know, yeah. and there's no way to fake it. It's hard to find things like that in this world. It like is. You can, you can fake a lot of things. You, can. you can't fake your fucking jujitsu. Right. And that's so true that you said that like in jobs, people make a lot of money faking it until they make it. But in jujitsu, you can't because you're going to be tested. Mm -hmm. You know? I credit a lot of my jujitsu to your techniques that you've tested. Like I get a lot of uh, like feedback from people that mm. it's like, oh, wow. Like, Oh, you've only like, especially when I, I first got my purple belt or like right. even before I got my purple belt, they were like, oh, wow, you've only been training for this long. Like now it's kind of like, you know, I'm at my four year mark. It's like people kind of expect it out right. of me, but I'm still trying to reach that point where it's like, oh, you've only been training this long. Because <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's a real mark for like, oh, like he has a deep understanding of the yeah. art. And my understanding comes from your understanding mm -hmm. of the art because I'm. Like, I'm a reflection of the people who taught me. So, like, I have you, mm -hmm. I have Rao, I have... Oh, I was lucky enough to train with Eddie, who was actually one of your pupils yeah. from back in the day. I, I, I trained with Calistine. Like, there, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of people. I'm an amalgam of all oh, of them. Oh, yeah. And all I feel like all you guys have really helped, like... It's like, like you said before, like a technique time machine. Yeah. Like, you just fucking put me in there. Yeah. And then, like, I don't got to go through all those pitfalls no. that everybody else really You can avoid to. them. Two years yeah. into it, like I said... You're, you're in such a good company, you're going to avoid so many things that could have set you back, so many things that they could have possibly injured you. Mm -hmm. By being in that group there, yeah. it's thrown you six years in the future probably, and you tech traveled that far. And a lot of people don't get that ability, you know? It's really fortunate of you. I think now it's more of like a, a plateauing where it's like how, like after you reach a certain point, like how do I get better? Mm -hmm. What is there like, okay, I've reached the point where I, I am aware of my natural athletic ability. Mm -hmm. Like I'm aware of what or my body your can attributes do. Are, yeah. yeah. Like I know my attributes. I know my body. I know what I, I'm good at doing, what I'm like not so good right now at doing. Mm -hmm. So like what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to get better, but 
they reach like their plateau. Like so, you're saying like they've been training for a while and they plateaued. Yeah, they're not a beginner. You're saying they're not a beginner anymore. Like somebody in my position, I feel like I f- I feel like sure I'm getting better, but mm-hmm. like you know, like you know how when you first start a sport or something, like the rate of you getting better is like explosive, like it's oh, exponential. It's huge, yeah. Yeah. It's like if you weigh 400 pounds, you want to lose weight, you're going to lose like 75 pounds in a very short amount yeah. of time. Yeah. So like I'm reaching that point where like, you know, it was like that and now it's kind of like this. So like, is there any advice you could give to like, absolutely. Like with everything, when anything stagnates, anything gets to that level where you feel that things are weighing down, mm-hmm. anything that stagnates has to be shaken up. And in your terms, that would mean you'd have to change things. You'd have to, like I said, keep your routine, but take one day a week where you do something different. And I'm not saying just train with somebody different. Take a different approach to it. Take a day where you say, this day I am, you know, only going to be using, I don't know, uh, attacking things in the reverse of what I'm used to. I'm only going to be using my left hand when I'm training. Like things that are going to be forcing you to uh, adapt in the way in the way that you would have where if you were injured and you had to work around that injury Mm -hmm. because you're so used to like i said you train with high level people you're used to the way they move right and then when you roll with somebody lower level you can see it right away you have eyes made for that now so in the same sense you need to try and think of shaping your brain in a way that when you uh feel things are uh so set that they're you know you expect Tomorrow's training is no different than yesterday's, which is no different than a month ago. You have to find a way to maybe go somewhere else, get some different training, but also have something set in front of you where you find those the deficiencies that you have. We all have them. And I told you earlier today off camera that I would always write down on a post-it note mm-hmm. three things I need to work every day I go in. Even when I'm teaching a class, I still have it on my phone because once the class is over, I'll ask some people to stay and I need to work on some stuff. And the reason I say a post-it note, just so you could, I can reiterate it, is that mm-hmm. um, you know people tell me they keep notes on their phone, but you know, you're know you sweating at the gym and you can't get into your phone. Flip your phone over where the post-it note is and see the three things you need to work and make sure you hit those things. Because jiu-jitsu is such a volatile art that we have so many ups and downs and that you can have a terrible day in jiu-jitsu and it affects the rest of your day. Mm-hmm. Not many other things in your life do that, have that hold on your life. But in jiu-jitsu, if you feel that you made a huge mistake or you got finished or passed or whatever, it'll affect you for the rest of the day. So if that's how you view jiu-jitsu, that it's a huge part of your life like that, then you should try your best to do these three note systems where all you're thinking about is getting these three things accomplished. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when you do it, your your ser- your sense of, of merit is changed. Now you're saying, okay, I need to work a side control escape, I need to work on my hand fighting, and I need to get this one reversal done. So none of those things are a submission. Mm-hmm. They're all something that forces you to leave your ego out of the door and leave it home. Yeah, and you're gonna say I'm working from bottom side I'm gonna fight this person I will let them pass let them do whatever they need to and then once they get there I'm gonna be working this no matter what they're thinking if they're saying man I just passed Fabian's guard you're not thinking about that and that's hard for a lot of people that's what I was gonna say I think that's one of the hardest things like they say jujitsu is not like an 
egotistical sport it is so fucking filled with ego it's like mm-hmm. disgusting like i it see it yeah. i see it like there's elitists there's people who like oh that guy's never passed my guard or just shit like that mm-hmm. but like at the end of the day we're just training right and like i know like i take your word and i i really like i mull it over it's not something i just in one ear not the other like i'm i'm really gonna try to adopt this three post-it system well mm-hmm. this three move system on yeah. a post-it for a daily and, routine yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try to do that and but I could just see how that would oh, that would fuck with people, me. Like, and just you'd be thinking, man, these guys must think I'm getting worse. Yes, yes. And it's like, oh, let me check this recording. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, like. Remember, jujitsu is a personal art. I say it all the time. It's not him and him. It's you. You have to relate it to yourself in your own growth. You can't look at it as thinking, man, all I'm trying to work is a mountain escape. People at the end of the day are going to think that I've gotten worse today. And, have to go to, and then you're going to say, let me go and explain it to them. No, no don't do that. That's <laughs> yeah. probably the worst, most cringe yeah, absolutely. thing. And like, even then, if that happens, that's going to dilute your training. Because I was thinking about that. Like, dude, if I tell somebody, like, even if you're giving like, I feel like if I'm going to work my side control escapes, I have to give like some sort of a guard. So that they, they can feel that they passed. And they're like, okay, I got a good pass. Let me right. try to kill them now. As opposed to like, just like. Uh, like lay, like lemoning lemoning out your guard and like really letting them pass yeah they're not going to give you the right feeds anymore not at all but so like it's like a measure if you're of with a high level person and let's say you give them three to four seconds of guard work three to four seconds of guard retention they get through they'll be like that was different something's happening I'll go with it yeah and that's what I mean it's like when you're training with those type of people who are into a group moving forward, not just themselves, then, you know, we can understand that. I could tell if somebody lets me pass. Mm-hmm. I could tell when they're giving me concessions. And it doesn't always feel right, you know. But the thing is, they're probably working something, you know. Um, but I would not let myself uh, think too much about it, though, in the sense that, like I said, <coughs> to... Uh, worry what they're going to think because of the the skills that I'm working on for this day. I'm telling you just to try it, you know, one day a week for, you know, the next six weeks of writing these things down and trying that and seeing how much growth you can have. And in a short amount of time, you might be able to encapsulate four months of jiu-jitsu growth um, in, you know, a week or two of doing this routine. As long as you know what your deficiencies are first, do you? Uh, that's probably the best like question to ask. Like you have to ask the right question in order to get better. I don't personally, if I had to ask like what my deficiencies are, I'm not confident in my wrestling. So like, and then I'd have to break that down even more because wrestling is such a general like. Okay, so like, I don't feel safe in single legs when somebody has my leg mm-hmm. or something like that, or or like. So yeah, like I, I would have to break it down like that. And I, that's something really introspective. I'd have to like really take a long time. Maybe to, like, something you could add to your repertoire of questions for Fourth Stringers podcasts. You could ask somebody, "What would you say is one of the main things you would need to work on to feel complete?" And in that sense, it's not asking somebody what's your weakness. It doesn't put somebody on the spot because I know if I listen to your podcast and you had a regular question asking competitors, what's your weakness? I'd be writing that down for every client. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to ask it in a different way, but it's a, it's a great question to know introspectively for your own growth. So people should ask themselves, what is something they're missing? And everybody's different because I have friends who like, they would say it's their mental. 
Right. Like it's, it's Absolutely. like, you know, like, oh, it's, it's, I, I'm so anxious before I compete or I'm so nervous That's before normal, I train. Yeah. yeah. Right. And like, wow, there's so many different ways to approach there that. Is. And like I told you off camera before, I said, you know, the other pro that contacted me the other day and was saying, you know, that he, the way he feels is uh, unconfident and it was a lot of mental things. Those sort of things are what we're talking about that it might not be necessarily identifiable as my wrestling is bad that's why i feel this way they're saying that it's something in their head that they don't feel they're you know um respected as much as they should be or Mm -hmm. they're not as confident but how do you know that that feeling isn't coming from something on the mat how do you know it's not if you filled in that slot of your wrestling and getting it to like an eight out of ten how do you know you're not going to feel more confident it's so many variables here that it's too tough to quantify you know so how do how would you go about like identifying that? Like I I don't I don't. It's hard. You like, have to look inside, and you have to be able to be confident enough to say, "I am really bad at this," and you have to be able to be that person that after a role, you know, you want to look strong in front of somebody. You have a hard role. Nobody finished each other, but let's just say he had more advantages over you. If that's how you think, mm-hmm. and you'd be like, "Well, what was it? Did I tape it? Can I look back at it?" As soon as I'm done, can I write it down so I can look back and have something tangible to work with? These are all the, the, the variations of how people's paths can go in jiu-jitsu. And it depends how hard they're going to be on themselves. Jiu-jitsu is a personal art. It's a private art. And it's a selfish art. And if you're not going to be able to take that self-care and analyze your everyday motions in jiu-jitsu and progress, then... Most likely, your your progress is going to be on a uh, on a trend you couldn't chart, you couldn't graph it because it's not a direct relationship. You want to be able to say the amount of time I put into this and the amount of effort I put in is a direct relationship to my progress, but you can't say that because there's too many variables. Unless you're able to view yourself as uh, like I said, uh, a fallible thing that you have things wrong and I need to work on them. And the only way it works is by writing it down. And I said this earlier that we are very good at coming up with ideas. We are very good at coming up with concepts. Uh, speaking genetically just about our brains, that we're very good at creation, but we're very poor at storage. We're mm, very poor at yeah. retention. So even though you could come up with a a, a just a brainstorm of ideas today you're not going to put it into effect tomorrow dude that blows my mind because yeah that's true i've i've come across so many techniques that i remember at one point in my jiu-jitsu you told me hey it's like uh it's like a wall and you've got spitballs and you just yeah. i want you to spitball like the spitballs are techniques and whatever sticks sticks whatever right now sticks. you're just throwing yeah. all the techniques you can at that wall yeah and i feel like okay i've done that but the retention like I've learned something like at my two year mark that just now is starting to click mm-hmm. like and that's because I'm not putting enough effort into my retention yeah. into, into into really drilling like what yeah like like everything that I've learned and like trying to retain it especially that that uh, yeah. post technique is yeah that's a big part of it but yes that's why like I said to, as you just said to see what sticks but the only way to do that is to throw enough things at it to see what it is but you're not giving it a chance. You know, you people have to give it a chance first and come up with things that they need to work on. Yeah. And I'm saying you'll feel better at the end of your sessions because you'll tunnel vision in a sense 
thrust away the feelings of saying, this person passed me. This person did better than me. You'd be like, nope, here's my checklist. This is what I Because none of that done. matters. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to... Because it's just me on this track. Yeah. I mean, it's not a... I mean, I, we're on teams, but it's not a team sport. What you do doesn't affect me when I compete. It doesn't matter. This is personal. This is on my track, and I'm out there alone. Until the day there's tag team grappling, we, we have to think this way, you know? Um, but, like I said, my specialty is trying to get a large amount of growth in a short amount of time, but it's only those people that grasp those techniques. Eddie Cummings was one of them that he understood early when I said this is personal, it's a selfish art. Oh, he took yeah. it to true meaning. And I mean, yeah. the guy went and he sacrificed everything in his life to become the you know one of the best. And he really understood that. He's a minimalist, doesn't own anything, doesn't buy anything. Everything was just about his growth. Everything doesn't own anything did you do you, okay so like when did you first meet him because i the way i understand it is you made a group like mm-hmm. a club at stony brook right what were you studying there or teaching there or what i was studying there and i was teaching classes there and i asked about uh jiu-jitsu clubs and they said there was a club there went down to the club and whoever was running the club i think i rolled with them and then they're like, they're oh, like do you want to do it <laughs> they're like yeah, listen i'm busy yeah and so uh, i took over the club and um, we were able to get somewhat of a budget and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, so we were able to order stuff. And um, one day I remember I had some Sarah guys who had come down and uh-huh. they were also uh, math teachers there. <laughs> one of the math teachers said, oh, you know, one of my friends wants to come down and check it out. And I remember this really geeky guy, he's like pudgy, came in and like had his hair in his face and stuff. And he's like, oh, Krishna, he goes, you know, I, I've heard a lot about you. And I was hoping, you know, um, I could join your class. And I said, sure, whatever. Who was in the class at this point already? At this point. Any names? Uh, yeah, yeah. John Sateva was already there. Um, the other guy uh, that competes a lot, uh, Dave Porter, was also there at the time. And Eddie came in late, as far as Stony Brook goes. Yeah. Was, was Hottie there? Uh, Hottie was there, yeah. Ha- well, give me the list of everybody yeah. who was there. It was uh, Hottie. Uh, yeah, it was Hottie, John Sateva. Um there was Dave Porter. Dave Porter. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, the guy Kristov. He was a big muscular guy that was there, and I know he's really big into Bitcoin today. And there was, um, let's see, uh, there was a lot. The Iron Yuppie was he there? What was uh, yeah, yeah. Phil was there. Phil, Phil Meyer yeah. was there, of course. Uh, yeah, he was one. He was my first student at that time, and he started Stony Brook with me from the very beginning. Holy shit! I met him when he was like thirteen years old, and. I was working in a junior high school and he would come to the gym and I would show him stuff. And I remember because he was wearing like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu shirt that he got and I immediately took an interest in him. And so he's been training forever when you think about it. Um, But yeah, so at that time, like it was a strong group that was there. And even when I would take them to go and compete, they would always win. And um, the only thing was though, is that I didn't have any big people. Everybody was small, like, which was that's fine, great. Right? Yeah, I mean, everybody was like 150, 160 and under, you know. Uh-huh. And then when I, when Eddie introduced himself, I could tell something was different because even watching him roll the first or second time, he knew what he was doing, which was bizarre. I never saw what do you him. Mean? He never flailed in the sense of the the word like where somebody passed him and like he turned over and gave his back. It was never like things like that a white belt does or I shouldn't even say white belt. It was never something that somebody that had zero technique did. He always had an idea 
And he joined right about the time when I was doing an in-house tournament. And we would do this once a year to establish who was my best guy at the time. Uh-huh. And it was fun, but it was very competitive. And uh, whatever, I think at the winter, I would take them out for dinner and drinks or something like uh-huh. that. Even if they were underage. Kiss. Yeah, kiss. And he started like a week before the in-house tournament. And he said, can I do it? And I said, I don't know if you'd want to. Is all these guys have been training a while. And he's like, he said, I don't mind. He said, I'd still do it. And at the time, I didn't realize, like, whatever little thing he learned, he'd stay in the room there and he would train and then go home. Hour later, go back, train again. And then he'd go somewhere else. And, like, recently Ari was there, too. And Ari told me that, like, you know, he'd meet up with Eddie again later in the day and stuff. Oh, yeah. You remember what he told us at the bar? He was like that they would go. Eddie thought that being barefoot and running barefoot would mm. make his feet stronger. Right. So they'd go to like the track and run on like gravel or whatever yeah, together yeah. just just because he had this idea that yeah. oh this will make me better at jujitsu. Ari jumped on the bandwagon. He yeah. was like, Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> Eddie had a lot of things with his feet to try and keep them strong, he said. He told me that like he would run flights of steps in the city with flip flops. So he would like grip the flip flop if so it doesn't fly off and it made his Achilles really strong to do that. Oh that's ridiculous. And I said, okay. But anyway, <laughs> so like, yeah, he joined back then, but he never seemed out of the water. He always had an idea. He was never green. And even when he jumped into the in-house tournament, he fought. I had a female that was in it who at the time was very strong. And she trained with me for a while and she beat guys. In was she 152? Uh, she was, she was close. To, no, maybe like she was 130s. Oh, but okay. I remember she, Eddie didn't even give her a chance. Like, <laughs> like stepped over her guard, turned her over, choked her out. And just, this was a girl that didn't want to tap or anything at the time. And <gasps> Did she like, go to sleep? No, it got really close. It was getting to the point where I had to walk in and stop it. But then she finally tapped and she was pissed. Didn't even say, you know, good match or anything. She was mad. Yeah. And then afterwards. Well, here comes this fat fuck. <laughs> yeah. Fucking. And one, he was fat at the one time. One week in. And then. How big do you think he was? Maybe like 185. Oh my God. I remember he was only 5'6". Yeah. You know? And right afterwards, I remember the girl was Phil's close friend. And I remember Phil like got payback and just smashed Eddie. And Oh, really? Phil was a brute, you know? And yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Everything was so physical. How old was he? Uh, Maybe 16, 17. Shit, so she was like 16 or 17 too? I believe so. I, I Dude, might. at that age, you got that ego too. Yeah, like, yeah. fuck, man. But for years, though, these guys were terrorizing Eddie. And um, How old was Eddie at the time? Uh, I think he was 22, 23, something like that. Yeah. 22, 23. Yeah. And Dude, I started, started losing weight, getting the jujitsu body out of nowhere. And I remember like he would make time to do, like he would cross-train and do his workouts, then come and do privates with me. Then he would go to Stony Brook and train and back to Red Dragon and trained there at night with Nick and everything. So, like, he was never stopping. Well, now he had direction in his life. Yeah, yeah, and that was you the know, big thing he said. That's, that's yeah, like, well, oh, so he told you that? Like, did you ask him, like, hey, why are you going so hard at this? What is it for uh, you? Well, he always said that because he saw Jonathan as being so good, and Jonathan was already somebody, John Sateva was already in great shape. He, he loved working out. And he picked up a lot of jiu-jitsu. And Jonathan used to do great in the academy. And then when he would compete, though, he always, like, it took him, maybe, like, his first four competitions, he never medaled or anything. He wasn't doing well. Uh, But in the academy, he'd crush everybody. And Eddie said, you know, he looked up to the fact that he was doing all that. And he liked to see that even though I was teaching, I was still competing and stuff. And he said that, you know, uh, he appreciated the fact that 
if I saw him not using technique, that I would call him out on it and say, you know, you have to do this again. Uh-huh. It's not acceptable to yeah. do. And I would tell him because, you know, you're 170 or whatever, you can't get away with this technique if you're fighting somebody 270. Yeah. So I said, you have to be a little bit more efficient than that. And he never took offense. He took everything, internalized it, and spit out something even better than what I said. You know, he was always a savant with it. Yeah. And I shouldn't say he's a savant. He's somebody with work ethic that was unrivaled, you know. At that time, I didn't know anybody training three times a day. He was the first person I saw, I think, back in 2009. Made it happen, yeah. yeah. Now he's been training 10 years now, you know. Pretty crazy. And he's accomplished so much. Got his black belt in five years or something. Ridiculous. Well, you gave him that base. Well, that's what he says. And uh, one of the, the, the few positive interactions I had with Danner was um, he called me and he, he said that um, that you know he's been taking Eddie under his wing and he said that you know what I instilled in him to look at things analytically and be able to discern what's useful and what's not, he says, is the most obvious thing about him. And he said it's a pleasure to be able to put technique on him, you know, to give him stuff. And it made me feel really good at the time, you know, because at the time I didn't know Dan or her that well personally and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a nice uh, compliment to get. And obviously things changed since then. Uh, dude, like, okay, so here's this inspired, like, fat Eddie Cummings. How long were you guys uh, training? Like, how long was that group going on for? From, like, 09, the end of 09, I think, till um, he had to move to the city to go to school at the end of 12 and then oh. he would just come back like a couple times a month for privates and then he was training at Henzo all the time and I remember him he would come and tell, take a private and he'd say this is what they're doing I just we need to work on this and uh, everything was relatively you know basic traditional problems mm-hmm. he would say you know this person's trying to pass like this this person's getting out of uh, my daily heave guard and this was re- this is pretty accurate to what the problems were and then like, you know, I remember people weren't passing as guard and we always worked on guard hygiene, how to sit up properly and posture and, mm-hmm. um, you know, something very specific to our styles. We do a lot of, uh, besides the leg lock, we do a lot of elbow control arm bars and he caught on oh, to that yeah, very fast. That. Yeah. And um, besides Jonathan, he's probably one of the, the best guys I taught that has the best elbow control arm bar. And um, he went a step beyond and... I don't know what he did for his hands, but his hands got really strong that he could really dig in the bone to hold on and stuff. But at that time at Henzo's, though, I remember nobody was attacking his legs and stuff. And then all of a sudden, in like the middle of 2013, um, he says people are catching on. He says they're getting they're getting savvy to what he's doing. And then little did we know, a few months later when he got his black belt in 14 or whatever it was or 15, that all of a sudden they're adapting what he's doing. Yeah, you know, and they're. What would you credit that to? Like they're just the same in the same way you were poaching techniques back in the day. You think they were doing that? No, this isn't poaching. This is different. This is when I I knew that when Eddie went there, that they're gonna get a different taste of technique from what we were doing, and he was a great example of what we were doing. And once you put that seed in another school, everybody around him has to react to that, and those people who are everyday training with Eddie are gonna find counters. And as they adapt, that that circle gets bigger of yeah. how they everybody's teaching everybody how yeah. to deal with him. And he caused such a ruckus there, people didn't want to roll with him because he was just too advanced. He was too good. He was hurting. Maybe he was hurting people. I don't know. But the point was is that 
they couldn't deal with it. And then in a short amount of time, um, the school started to absorb what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure his instructor saw it and then found a way to say, I'm going to start teaching this and I'm going to teach these three things that you're doing. And he was like, and he was like, fine, you're paying attention to me. Oh, Do this it. feels great. Yeah. Who doesn't want attention from their master, you know? Yeah. And then I noticed little by little the school was changing. And then I remember like I used to watch Tonin fight a lot. And then um, all of a sudden, like, you know, his style started to change. And Eddie said, you know, I'm training a lot with him. And I said, you know, he's going to be absorbing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And he goes, it doesn't matter. It's great training for me. He said, we have wars. And I remember like Eddie would catch him in guillotines and heel hooks all the time. And Eddie was completely unknown as a purple belt, you know, but yeah. he was doing this to this guy. And obviously he wanted to learn it. We started to show him. Then Eddie showed the instructor. And then that's history from there. But yeah. Eddie was always at the forefront of being the impetus behind every movement that was there. So like the 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 current uh, arsenal that's there being uh-huh. taught wouldn't have been there if he never visited there in two thousand twelve two thousand thirteen. Mm. It'd be a very different landscape if he didn't go there. I think so too because imagine he's the one who's going out and competing and like really doing the moves to people, right? And going and doing the moves to right. people, rolling, putting it through. The, the the making it go like you know the scientific mm-hmm. theory or whatever like of, yeah. the, of like I built a theory mm-hmm. I'm testing it against exactly. the anvil of reality yes. and then I'm 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 coming back with it and now right. this is and this is immutable absolutes he did it in he did it in absolutes he did it in weight class and absolute every time so he could see that this is real and it's, this is a real technique yeah. as opposed to like I'm not being a good right and the biggest thing was that the Abu Dhabi trials was the first time I've ever seen and I think. I mean, I hate to say something like this. I think the world has ever seen somebody lifting somebody off the ground and putting an inside triangle on their legs, or you guys would call it cross-ashi or something, and getting into these saddle positions. And I've never seen it. I don't know if the world has seen that position before, yeah. that entry. Uh, I mean, in Sambo, they have the position, but I've never seen somebody... Elevate you know, them. Elevate them, thank you, and getting these ground scissors on people. And it was at that Abu Dhabi where he did it to Enrico Coco, where everybody was like, what is his likes doing? Yeah. You know, and I remember I told him, I said, be stingy with that. I said, people are asking you all the time. I said, just don't be so quick to show everybody this stuff. And uh, I remember, like, he got to the point where somebody asked him at a seminar... And they said, oh, can you show me how you're elevating them like, and getting into that cross-ashi position? And I go, Eddie. And he goes, oh, it's okay. I got it. And he shows them. And, man, he must have did it lightning fast. Like, he did it literally, like, I don't want to say literally. He actually did it in the blink of an eye. And I've never seen somebody's legs move so fast. And he goes, you got it? And the kid was like, thank you. And, like, they just walked away. And I was like, okay, that's fine, you know. (laughs) You know, at least if you're going to show it. I feel like now, like, I remember when I was trained, I trained with him for like a good year, I feel like, or like eight yeah, months, probably. eight months to a year. And like, he was always, he always helped us. He always showed us stuff like, mm-hmm. cause we were his training partners at yeah. the time. Like, you know, he had no real reason to like keep things from us like that. Like yeah. if we asked him a specific question, he would help us. But what the problem was, was that he would technique bomb us. Yes. So like. We would ask something, and he would not only give us something; he it would give us something and and everything and yes. the kitchen sink. Yeah, and we'd be like, uh, like, yeah. and and nobody's gonna be rude enough. I I feel like it's rude to like 
you know, okay, let me do this. Let yeah. me do this. Yeah, like, or, or you know. Imagine asking him, I say, oh, could you say it in uh, smaller? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, no, nobody's going to do that. No. Nobody's going to like, okay, let me record you doing this. No, right. he's not even going to allow that. So like, at the end of the day, it's like, how are we going to absorb all of this? Like, it's right. so much yeah. knowledge there. And you're spot on to that. Because I used to say to him, I said, you have to tech bomb people. And um, I, you asked, what did that mean? And I say, you know, when you're giving these techniques out, they're asking for your A game. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is valuable stuff. I said, we suffer to make these techniques. Don't let these people travel to the future on what you're giving them. I said, give it to them. But I said, just leave out the crux of the move. And he goes, no, I do the opposite. He says, if they ask for something, I'll give them my entire thesis on he the gives it. He <laughs> gives everything. But yeah. I think that helps him so much when it he does. does that. Because, you know, when you understand something, you teach it back. And then if somebody gets it, like, that means that you have a mm-hmm. real grip. You have a real understanding of it. Dude, he would teach us everything. Everything. Yeah. And it, it like some of it stuck like uh, but he uh, also knew sure. like I said because of our storage capabilities you're not gonna walk out of here with this moment. no dude and I was smoking so much weed at the time dude I, I almost Easy. regret it like it was crazy no but like seriously like I would go in there and I just wanna roll sometimes and like <laughs> and like you'd have these great questions mm-hmm. on like side guard and R guard and, yeah. and elbow control and like Man, those I'm, old buzzwords, those are great. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, like, I'm, sh- dude, like, that's how I remember it. Like, mm-hmm. just, like, I'm remembering, like, and I'm, hopefully it's stored somewhere in my body where it can all, like, click at one point. Yeah. But I know that I probably didn't make the best of having him there. Like, I did That's it. interesting. You could look back on it like that. That's good. I'm sure, I'm sure I did it. And, like, now I have, sure I did it. And, like, now I have JC there, but right. JC's another iteration of yes. Yes, him. Remember, he learned from Eddie yeah, as well. Yeah, so like it's like, you know, like there's there's a, I forgot what they call it, but it's basically like a game of telephone where, you know, you get the information from somebody and then yeah. it gets a little more fuddled every time. Right, right. But the thing is with JC, he's also innovating. He so is. that's why, Absolutely. yeah, that's why it's like, uh, like how you gave Eddie the training wheels and the, the eyes to really look, mm-hmm. observe, and learn and like, you know, like really come up with his own shit i think he did the same thing with uh, jc like yes he yeah he gave him that and like that that's done nothing but good things for him so it's hard for us to like see him yeah yeah. he actually mentioned jc early on to me when he was known as uh baby puberty they called him (laughs) what that was his name yeah that was his nickname and i said i said why are you training with this little guy and he said because he's had the smallest feet and nobody could catch him and he says, this is like my, he said that he used the reference of mine because I would always say like when you're training, um, you know, think about it like when a baseball player puts the rings on the bat and I said, you know, you just keep taking the rings on and you take them off and you'll be happy when all that weight is off and you have a good scale of reference and however you apply it, by the way I'm saying it right now, you can apply it. And he said that was his scale is that this guy had feet that were so small you could never fit it like on your wrist bone yeah. to like get a good heel hook. And he said, if I have that in my scale, then everybody else's foot will be easy to catch. So he started oh, early shit. and he says the exchange was he would always be there to help him and he would give him technique, you know, and he would help him train. And then all of a sudden he showed an aptitude for it, you know, and I then I heard of this JC. And I was like, oh, that was baby puberty. Yeah, Jay Sizzle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he's got one of those attitudes, man, where like he's great. he just keeps yeah. showing up. Yeah, he just person. keeps showing up. He doesn't ever stop, you yeah. know? So, like, it's it's crazy to see, like, the 
how it all like these these are the beginning movers like right. i'm sure a lot of people have never even heard of this like a lot of the the stuff that's in this arsenal people are still confused about elbow control arm bars which i think is a great leveler yeah any black belt i love that movie yeah and um a lot of these things like i said the, the, the side guard is very specific to east coast to us here these sort of things and um like the jc is a great person and like whenever we get together and we talk you know we, we love bouncing ideas off each other but isn't it interesting to think like just the way like jc is one of the best guys in the world and he was spawned from the inspiration from eddie who was spawned, you know, from me, and then all these things, like, it's so odd the way that these things always work out, where it would be so different if we all just stuck to our own. Yeah. And that's why it's unfortunate that still we have schools that don't invite cross-training, that in my day that was frowned upon, and so you didn't have the level of growth we have today, too. Um, today it's okay to pretty much go and train somewhere else, but they're still not happy with it. Yeah, the term yeah. Creante is still around. It is, yeah. And that's like... I mean, that's been applied to me many, many years, you know? Do you think justly, though? I think for no. the greater good of jujitsu, it's almost like you got to look at the whole picture. Like, damn, like, I feel like you guys have elevated the sport so much. And, like, by going... Yeah, even Eddie going to Unity as, as fucked up as we want to... Mm make it seem like at the end of the day we're kind of building the sport yeah we're building the sport we're, we're giving these guys who maybe they're not they don't even like building the sport but at least we're doing it somebody's right. doing it it's yeah. for the greater good at the it end is. of the day like they're just people dude like i i've interviewed a couple unity guys they're all so nice they're and, very nice and yeah. they, they they're respectful they're nice they talk so highly about marillo and his work ethic and stuff Marillo's like yeah. there's no like I love seeing it as people, like yeah. bringing it down to a people type of level. So like, it's cool to hear you say that. That like, yeah, like, where yes. would we be now if, if we you hadn't done that? Invite this type of vari variation and variability, and um, you know, the ability to have you and this person brainstorm, or you don't even know. Like, forget about brainstorming. Just imagine you training somewhere else, and you encountered something you haven't encountered, and now you your mind can go off in that direction. Like, I, and I say this all the time: says there's just so much so many variations out there of what can happen that you need to be able to get out of your own way and try something that's uncomfortable. Jiu-Jitsu is uncomfortable, so you should be the good at it. The whole thing is uncomfortable. The whole thing is. And that's why we should be good at being able to try new things. But once you try and get out of that normal path, you, you have a groove in of, of training and going here and training with these people, it's hard to, to get used to that. Even though you're used to It's being, also dangerous. It's dangerous, sure. Yeah. Because you don't know the people. But in the long run, it's good to develop those extra connections there. And because, like I said, I teach everywhere, I'm accepted everywhere, that now I'm at a point where the politics don't affect me anymore. They still do to a point, mm -hmm. but only 10% of what it used to be. Uh, but it's still, still crazy to think as an adult, I'm still limited by invisible lines like that you know yeah it's unfortunate <laughs> like and the internet kind of blurred those lines but like it did but still i could see how that that yeah. could happen because yeah. of social media everybody kind of feels like we're all kind of together like you could talk to 10th planet people there and, mm -hmm. and you know talk about whatever happened in yeah. this sport and this event uh but when it comes down to you going there and being in their photos and that wait a second yeah it's not the same that's thing where anymore. it gets a little uh yeah like, uh, uh, yeah, I visited, but, like, yeah. let me not... Uh... And then they're going to be like, huh, <coughs> what, did, what did you show them? 
that's the that's the crux of it it's like yeah. even though there's the internet where literally you can almost find any technique out there mm-hmm. there's still that stigma of like what did you show them yeah because jujitsu is such a sport where it's like there's a big difference between what i see on the internet and what i feel from you right like the feel that you're giving me will make all the difference in technique mm-hmm. and there's not I don't even know anything else in the world that's like that, like offhand. Like, oh, no. I don't, I can't think of anything else no, that's nothing like... nothing that you can compare that to. That, and that's why seminars are so important. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, it's so crazy. Like these techniques are still so guarded because people know that shit where it's yeah. like, what, what did you, what did you really teach them? What did, why did you go train over there? Right. Like that's our technique. And the thing is, you have to think of this, is that this is 2019, almost 2020. Modern jiu-jitsu now has been around approximately 20 years. Modern jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Who would you say like started modern jiu-jitsu? Why, why would you say 20 years? Because oh, shit. a good part there too. I got it. I got it. I got it all. What, what were we just saying? Um, what I was saying is that because like modern jiu-jitsu has been around now for, for about 20 years. And yeah. I say modern because... Um, is that going? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's still going. Nice. Uh, I say that modern jiu-jitsu has been around for about 20 years and you ask me why I say modern and I say modern because of the sport aspect of it. You can't necessarily say jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu if we were only using it for self-defense or you're only using it for Uh, real scenarios because it's not going to evolve like that. You don't have a set stage for that to say, okay, mug the... So yeah, you can't have a a set stage for self-defense and say, okay, you mug this person, you defend them. Now, next time, do better. Mm-hmm. So there's no self-improvement in the self-defense aspect. Yeah, right? yeah, it's hard to Even though really it's a big market that. for for charlatans to make money on. Why don't they have that? Like, hey, here, grab this purse. You trying to mug me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we'll do mug jitsu. I'm sure some schools do yeah. things like that. I mean, it is a great technique to do, especially for women and stuff. But modern jiu-jitsu is modern because it's sport jiu-jitsu so that we constantly have people defending what you're going for. Yeah, and then you have to constantly found counters. So there's been thousands of counters since 1998 that bring us to today, and to giving us a very very high level of jujitsu where hopefully not much power is being used. There's a ton of leverage being used, and people aren't getting hurt or tired as quickly. And that's what makes me say modern. But this is an arms race, and make no mistake about it, that when we are very uh, secretive. And clandestine with our techniques and our strategies it's because it's an arms race everywhere and every school is trying to get the top technique and you'd be stupid to think that this school doesn't want your technique if you have something that's proven yeah and that's why I was always telling my guys you know and people try and record me like when I'm doing stuff after class is you have to be private with it especially if it's something that works it's something that you helped innovate or your partners helped innovate and i can't ever say the word create because we never know if it showed who up was earlier. the original you know, yeah I'm sure maybe in greece and pancreation times people thought of this and it's gone you know they were doing it longer than we were and they were doing it at a at a, a much bigger scale in the sense that mm-hmm. people were going and seeing it live and it was a small population back then. So the, the relative proportion of people that were fighting and spectators is greater than today, I would think. And thinking of that, this arms race goes today into sport jiu-jitsu specifically. Uh, and 
the way we think of it today is that in Abu Dhabi, you can't win if you don't wrestle. Yeah. Abu Dhabi is meant to be about finishers, but you get people that have been in Abu Dhabi long enough and they have the right brain for it. They realize, I don't need to know really anything in order to win. I just have to know when is points and what's a neutralizing technique. Who cares if I make a highlight reel? As long as I win that 40 Gs or whatever, yeah. It's amazing. And some of the best guys are strategists. And strategy isn't flashy. The Fabian strategy, right? Yeah. Nothing flashy, but it gets you the win. And in Abu Dhabi, it's always been interesting. Like I said, I've never missed one. I've been to many of them in person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've tried to help out with them. And I think that every year, you still see a throwback to that. But it's nice to see when you have guys like like in 2000, like... uh, 13 and stuff was a huge one in 2011 and 9. Like, you had mm-hmm. guys like Marcelo, Dean Lister, these guys who were just looking for truth. Mm-hmm. And they didn't care about the end of the round. They only cared at answering the question within the time limit. And the ultimate answer was finding a submission as fast as possible. So is that really Abu Dhabi? Maybe. I don't know. But it doesn't seem like that's who the current winners are. Abu Dhabi now, like uh, I like that Mo podcast. They were saying that like, it seems Abu Dhabi is more. It's wrestling with submissions. Mm-hmm. Good way to put it. Yeah. It's wrestling with submissions. Like you have, it's it's more wrestling than anything. Whoever's getting the first points is probably gonna win. Mm-hmm. And like, hopefully. It's going to change. It all changes. Everything changes. Because if that was like strictly the case, then you would have amazing wrestlers just winning all the time. Correct. But like, yeah. I don't know. You you still see like people like, I mean, like, JT, wasn't he a finisher? JT. Uh, no. No, he didn't finish in his last run. He's the champ. But uh, he was winning through takedowns and passing. I think Craig was actually making a run for it as a finisher. He finished like three of his matches. Uh, three, was it? Three or four? I'm not sure. I think it was three. I mean, it was he, low. He beat Marilo. He beat Low. Uh, was it Low that he flying triangle? Yeah. No. I think so. No. He flying triangle Marilo. I think he heel hooked the fuck out of Low. Yeah, I think it was a heel hook. You're and right. Yeah, yeah. And he weakened him And then he fought Gordon and then lost. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this year should be good for him. Um, in his division, possibly. Yeah, he's he's been a, training a lot at Enzo's, too. He's been training a lot. He's physically bigger and bigger. <coughs> um, but his division is super, super stacked. Uh, he's got a lot of good guys there. Um, Keenan was in it. I don't think Keenan's in it anymore. He got, Why not? I think he changed weights, Mo said. Oh. And uh, in that division there, uh, you have Arges, Gabriel Arges, Mike mm-hmm. Perez, who's amazing. Um, the wrist lock god. Yeah, amazing. And he's beaten Craig Jones before at Kasai, too. Yeah. All right, so we're, we're about to wrap up, so I'm just yeah. going to give you some, like, lightning <coughs> questions, I guess. Like, yes. All right, so what would be your, what's your favorite match? Uh, I enjoy watching. I'd have to say, like, I gained so much from Marcelo Garcia and from Pablo Popovich. I did privates with them for years. Mm-hmm. The final match they had together uh, from ADCC... 11 I believe it is and that's where uh, Pablo finally beats Marcelo and even though there was no finish in the match it was just so intense and to see two guys who I knew on a personal and a friendly level that were so even keeled and such 
nice people and nice human beings to see them fight so savagely was like a, a first for me where it like really hit me hard and it was just such an athletic technical match it's just so hard to feel like that there was any winner in that but wow. Pablo ended up winning but that's one of my favorites uh, if you ask me yeah, right off yeah. the top of my head definitely and who I, doesn't like watching Pablo you know yeah with his shirt off <laughs> I remember that one thing you told me Marcelo told you that whenever he trains he always keeps it so that he has one more gear yeah just in case yeah like he'll yeah. always have one more gear he could step it up right to. and because the thing is like he would get upset when people say can you believe how hard that guy went with me and he'd be like no matter how hard he goes I can go harder and it was sick to hear him say that That's here's crazy. this like calm smiling yeah. guy and you're just thinking like you see this brute over there and there'll be like this black belt from Brazil who's just like throwing people into the wall and he'd be like, I'll go harder. I don't care. <laughs> you know. Oh, and it blew so my mind, you know. And I was like thinking, man, that's some pinnacle to attain, you know. Uh-huh. And he's still the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When he's sharp, yeah. Hopefully he comes back soon. Hopefully. Yeah. The money's right. I can't wait to see that guy. I think he's dying to compete. Yeah. Every time I talk to him at Kasai, he says, <coughs> like, you know, this is, this is where I want to compete in New York. Kasai It's the best event. They, they treat people well. They pay well. And I saw him in person, man. Like... It's just he's just like, without even saying anything, he's just like a force, man. I just yeah. see him. I'm like, oh my god, he's real. Yeah, like that's real. Like all of our Jedi's, all of our martial arts legends. Yeah, they're right there. Yeah, you got our your Matt Sarahs, your Marcelo Garcias. You like can walk right up to them, and they're here, and they're right. still here, and they're 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 the giants whose shoulders we stand on. They are. That's fucking crazy. It is. I can't like. No other sport can you say that in. Yeah. No, I'm not talking to Michael Jordan in person. No way. I see Marcelo Garcia. Yeah. And the uh, craziest thing is when you meet these people, then you like you size them up, and you're thinking, they're bigger than on TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you told me who your favorite grappler is basically like. I didn't say that was my favorite grappler. Who's your favorite grappler then? Uh, I would. I, I mean, this might be biased, but I used to love watching Matt Serra fight, um, because all his fights at the time when jujitsu was traditional, he was not. He's the first jujitsu guy I've ever seen use single leg X. The mm-hmm. very first technique he taught me in 2000 was single leg X, and he would do it to a reversal or an ankle lock. Yeah. And I remember in every match, even his very first match in UFC when he fought Shoney Carter, he used it over and over, and nobody could stay on top. And I think for me, that was the most exciting, because never in my life did I think I'd have an opportunity where I'm learning something and seeing it on TV at the highest level at the oh, same shit. time. Yeah. Whereas like... He taught me that today, and tonight I'm watching him use it. And I was like, this is mind-blowing, you know? So he was probably one of my favorites to, to watch, even though, like I said, like it's another era. But yeah. it, it was still the most fun at the time, and it's hard to see that happen happen today. What about modern-day grapplers? Who's your favorite modern-day grappler? To say? watch. Yeah. Uh, somebody used to again. I mean, uh, I love watching Eddie fight. Mm. Um, I love watching him roll. But I haven't seen him compete in years. Yeah. So, like, someone who's, like, a recent competitor. A recent competitor. Yeah. Uh, I like to see, let's see, a recent that's uh, that's competing a lot. Uh, I enjoy watching uh, Ethan. I like watching. Yeah, the lankiest. Yeah, Ethan's a lot, of, a lot of great matches. <coughs> a lot of, I don't understand in competition how he moves at that pace and thinking that fast at the same time, like, the speed is blinding. that boy's unsweepable. Yeah, like I, I've rolled base. with him a couple times, man. Like he's unsweepable. Yeah. And he's so lanky. Just when you think you've got him, yeah, he's his lank. It's weird. I, I think I work with him too. And like when you like apply force to him, and like you try and lift him, like 
he absorbs that lift yes. and stuff. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like, it's an odd feeling. Like a lanky blob. Yeah, and it's good we have people like that in jiu-jitsu that show you, like, say, this is something you could try, and it's just something he thought of, you know? And it might just be genetic, I mean, like, just his, his body type that allows yeah. that, but it's something you could emulate, too. I asked him how to show to show me his signature, like, triangle. Mm-hmm. Showed it to me on the spot, and I was getting it. It was plug and play. Dude. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just a, a triangle from half guard that he uses all the time. With wrist control? I'm not sure. I think it was just like uh, overhand, over over into the uh, far armpit. And okay. He like stuffs it. And it's like an athletic triangle, really. It's a knee shield triangle. Huh. So like his near, you, you know what I mean? Like it's a yeah, knee yeah. shield triangle. This this one's the one that goes under the arm. This one's the one that shoots over it. Right. He just pulls you in with the with the middle finger and oh. the far armpit. Okay. Um. Oh, and I love watching Rao. I love watching Rao. Rao is good too. Yeah. yeah Rao's, a, Rao's a lot of fun He's to watch. somebody that like has like... Um, almost like seems like zero intensity when he's fighting but you know it's just trouble for everybody you know yeah he's scary yeah he's watching great. him fight is, is scary I, I, I love to see I love to hear his uh his thoughts on like his matches afterwards he's, yeah it's 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 intense what's going on up there though. I'm sure he's I'm just sure. got he's just got that dead he's, face he's really getting good. into that competition zone now like where like I think that where he I don't think maybe a year ago he was there and at least not at the high high level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think now he's finding his. He's got that confidence. He, yeah. he has got the confidence, which helps a lot. But I think also too that now that he's been through, <coughs> been through the ringer as far as like training against. I mean, fighting against all these pros, he knows he belongs there, and he knows he's probably better than them. And the thing is, yes. I'd be willing to say that he's better than all of them in a setting without a crowd. And I think once you factor in the crowd, that's where things change. Mm-hmm. And that's where people have to start looking in the jujitsu competition sense of saying how different it is when you have external factors. As opposed yeah. to saying, roll with me in the academy, I think Raul beat everybody. Yeah, you know? I think so too, man. I... But uh, but putting people out there is a little different. Like when he fought Canuto, that was a lot different, you know, last yeah. year. Yeah. I can see that. Canuto is somebody who will never be pressured in front of a crowd. He'll, he loves that. He'll play the crowd like yeah. a WWF player. Yeah. And he'll make sure you make mistakes and you're intimidated. Yeah. He'll and, force you to open up to try right. to appeal the crowd too. Like, because he's got the crowd on his right. side. And Fabian, what instructor would ever teach you that technique? None. None. I might bring it up. Got Val. Galvalmite. Yeah. That's like how to hype the crowd. Yeah. yeah. No, dude, I, I see him. like I see him moonwalk and stuff out there. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, Michael Jackson from the music. That's what he learned? Yeah. Um, all right. So I pretty much think that's it. If yeah, that's great. Uh, probably one last, like, yeah. any advice for all the white belts or, like, if you could go back in time mm-hmm. and give your white belt self some advice, what would it be? Uh, it would be be prepared for adversity and uncomfortability that anytime you feel that this might be wrong because it's uncomfortable or it's not going anywhere and it's not happening fast enough, I'd say to be more patient and be less patient. I would tell them those two things. And I'd say there are times that you have to be patient. And there are times you have to expect greater things from yourself. And when your knee is tweaked and you say you want to baby it, I would say use the rest of your body and figure something else out. I'd say don't sit down. And then I'd say sit down more. As much as a knot of a answer that is, mm-hmm. I think certain people would resonate with that. Uh, but it's really just to understand that you don't have to rush this, what it would be. 
you're going to get there. And it just depends on you having the proper guidance. I didn't really have great guidance, so I had to make it on my own. Uh, my instructor showed me techniques. He didn't really guide me, but it's my fault. Like I didn't really have that kind of relation. I didn't ask him for guidance, mm-hmm. so it's not up to him to do. But the effect that I've seen for like the past 15 years of guiding students is that giving them a course lets them burn energy in the right direction. Don't burn energy, you know, trying to work, you know, finger gripping machines or something like that when you could be training. But at the same time, if you're a competitor, take the time and study, watch film, watch the past. Just like they say in high school, you're going to be doomed to repeat it if you don't know it. And I tell it to you too, watch film. Film is a great teacher. I know some guys who are pros that set hours a day to watch film. And these are guys that aren't top tier. These are guys at your level that do that. And they watch film from the late 90s, early 2000s. And they make notes. And they take pictures of the notes. And they send it to me. And they say, is this right? Can you correct it? And I scratch things out. And then circle and point. And these are things that people, if you're serious about wanting to be the best today. Because everybody's good. Everybody's good now. Three years ago, not everybody was good. Everybody's decent now. So you really have to find something. Find your attribute and keep building on that. If you're a really good wrestler, don't throw the wrestling away to say, I'm going to be the best bottom player now. Stick to your attributes. That's what I'd say. When you're you're hot, stay hot with one thing. You know? All right. All right. That's it. That's it, guys. Hope Bye. you enjoyed it. Kisses. <laughs>